Masks are being shamelessly used by our governments as a political prop. Masks are being used as a reminder of a frightening scourge enveloping us and mandates are a tool of control. There's ample scientific evidence that masks don't protect wearers from COVID-19. And yet learned public health officials, professional lobby groups and conflicted media perpetrate the government lie. From Sheep Station Creek in Queensland, Australia to Los Angeles County in the US, mask hysteria rules. It is simply cruel to force the elderly and young children to wear a mask. Individuals should be free to choose, but public health officials should focus instead on the real risk of extended and unhygienic use of face masks and how to properly treat COVID-19. One of Australia's leading anaesthetists is Dr. Babak Amin. Dr. Amin has passion for healthcare and passion about medical education. Doctor, thank you for joining us. Mike, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Face masks are mandatory during lockdowns. Can you please take us through the latest scientific findings on the value of general use non-medical face masks in reducing infection, in particular COVID-19? Well, the truth is, Mike, I'd have a really hard time discussing any quality evidence that shows that masks worn by the general public out in the community are of any real world benefit. And before we get deeper into this discussion, it's worth briefly mentioning that there are different kinds of masks and there are different settings in which they've been studied. So we're all familiar with the N95 mask, also known as a medical respirator. We also have surgical masks and then these guys, cloth masks with absolutely no universal standards for their manufacture. It's just a piece of cotton. It really is repurposed underwear. Then in terms of settings, we have highly controlled medical settings where trained professionals are using a full suite of tactics and equipment to minimize the risk of spread. And then we have the broader community setting, outdoors, indoors, untrained members of the public using a wide variety of different masks. There's also the notion of source control and personal protective equipment. These are the two main ways in which masks are thought to be of benefit. So source control is stopping infected people from passing infection on and personal protective equipment means masks stop you from inhaling viral particles in the air. We know that a professionally fit-tested N95 mask, when used in concert with a full armamentarium of other PPE equipment, face shields, eye, eye masks, gloves, a hat, a gown, when you put all of those together in a well-ventilated setting and you're only having fleeting patient transmissions between the healthcare worker and the, and the person suspected of being infected with SARS-CoV-2, then yes, all of those together do play some appreciable role, quite a significant role in stopping transmission. But, but it's a suite, it's a complement of care, of strategy. Now to equate all of that with just this, in the great outdoors, in a real world setting, 
and say that this can confer benefit just in the same way that it, that, that entire suite of measures can, is a little bit like saying that an F1 Formula car, racing car and a Toyota Corolla can both win the Le Mans Grand Prix because they're both cars. It is utterly preposterous. What about, though, the, you know, the everyday face mask that we see people walking through a shopping mall or through a um, you know, supermarket or you know, a crowded area? They've got these, you know, all the same, the, generally, the blue mask. That, that, mm. um, how effective is that? And, actually, so, and how reasonable is it to wear it? They, uh, honestly, community mask wearing, universal mask wearing by well people is not supported by the, the data that we have up to date. So we have actually decades of pre-COVID era data, a raft of high quality meta-analyses. These are studies that pull other studies together that show no discernible benefit in arresting the spread of respiratory illnesses, in particular respiratory viruses. The most pertinent data that we actually have comes from influenza pandemics of the last decade that show that both cloth masks and surgical masks play no role in stopping community-based transmission. Now, all of this evidence has found its way into the WHO's own advice, which right up until May of last year did not recommend mask mandates at all. And the language of the the WHO's position only changed around June. And that was in response to political lobbying. To this day, the CDC, the WHO, and and Australia's own DHS still state in their official advice that masks should not be worn by well people out in the community. And that is because we have this raft of historical data that has shown us that time and time again. Now, supporting this historical data, we've actually now acquired 18 months of COVID-specific, COVID-era data. In particular, we have two powerful randomized controlled trials, the Danmask study, which had 6,000 participants, and there was another one that had 8,000 participants. Both of these studies failed to show any appreciable benefit, any appreciable protection in those who wore masks, meaning the rate of infection in those who wore masks all the time and in those who never wear them was essentially the same. Backing up these randomized controlled trials is a host of what we call observational studies, observational data. And that is from very you know, reliable first world countries, from, the, from certain states in the, in the Northern Americas, Uh, from certain EU nations, we're seeing that when mask mandates were introduced, the rate of infection before and after was essentially unchanged. In fact, in many districts, we saw the rate of transmission increase. Now, observational data is not as robust as the data that we've just discussed, but it is a very strong supportive piece of evidence. And when you put all of these data pillars together, what emerges is a very clear picture, and that is community mask mandates are ineffective at arresting the spread of respiratory viruses. Now, we do need to be complete. There are studies out there in the literature that have been published that do support mask use. And the most significant one of those is one that was published in The Lancet, commissioned by the WHO, and done at around about the time when they changed the language 
in their mask advice. This study was fraught with so many methodological errors and it was absolutely lampooned by many experts in the the biostats and public health arena. Firstly, it pulled multiple variables together. It pulled hand washing and mask use together. It pulled N95 masks and surgical masks in, in like medical and community settings together. And it still was only able to show at best mild to moderate benefit. But this idea that masks are fantastic and we all need to be wearing them has really taken hold and the media has really jumped on board. And unfortunately, it's not just the mainstream media. Even the scientific print media is doing this. And I I remember reading with horror a opinion piece in the journal Nature, which is one of the most prestigious scientific journals in history. And this article only cited 14 sources. Four of them were preprint, meaning they were not verifiable for context or critique for methodology. None of these cited studies were randomized control trials. Some of them were in fact opinion pieces from other authors. And they were all saying, oh look, you know, masks are fantastic. We don't need any more evidence to, to support their use. You know, when, when, when are people gonna just comply? And one of the, my favorite pieces, that, that one of my favorite references in that particular Nature article was one by the University of Edinburgh's Department of Engineering. It was a laboratory-based study. Now, lab studies are very, very tricky to extrapolate into real-world settings. This lab study found that all masks, even cloth masks, caused a 90% reduction in the forward flow of passages of air when they were worn. And, you know, that's an incredible, incredible finding. And they, and they used that and they came out in, in, in the mainstream media as well to say, look, this is unequivocal evidence that masks should be worn by everyone. If you read that study, they also go on to say that actually masks stop 90% of forward projection of air, but that air that isn't going out in the front of the person of the wearer's mouth is going out the sides, the back, and over the top of the mask. Now we know that SARS-CoV-2 spreads via aerosol transmission. Aerosols are tiny little particles that contain viral particles. And there is no way that either of these masks, surgical or cloth masks, can stop you breathing out aerosols or breathing them in. And I can show that very, very simply. So here we have a cloth mask and here we have a vaporizer, non-nicotine of course, absolutely don't condone the use of nicotine vapes. Thank you. (laughs) But what this does is it shows the, the flow of air and allow me to demonstrate. Wow, that's amazing. How poor, now, you, is, how poor is that? It really is. And, and what I don't know that if the uh, camera can pick up is that mm. there are vape particles all through the room here. Now, these vape 
particles are actually larger than aerosols that are larger than the aerosols that we breathe out but they clearly linger in the air and they go behind up and around and enter into any environment that the wearer is in so that demonstration in and of itself is not evidence but it is a very clear visual example that describes the mechanism for the overwhelming evidence that we've seen to date that community mask mandates are ineffectual and inappropriate in arresting the transmission of respiratory viruses like SARS-CoV-2. What about though with the uh, the average one we see the blue one? You want to do a demonstration on that? Board? Sure. So the blue ones, the surgical ones, these ones actually state in their manufacturing advice that they are not designed to filter or arrest viral transmission. But let's do a demonstration anyway. So let's make sure we get it nice and tightly over the nose, under the chin, right? That's amazing. And I'm not breathing out forcefully. That's just a normal tidal exhalation. They're of no use. They can halt larger droplets. Mm. They're not perfect in that regard at all. But when when we know that aerosol spread is such a significant form of transmission, in particular of, of pre-symptomatic transmission, which is the whole, you know, evidence, which is whole, the entire rationale and basis by which mask mandates and well people were, were pushed anyway. We'll talk about that a bit later. Um, it, it just makes no sense. It's, it's science fiction. Mm. If, you, if you cannot arrest aerosol spread, then... Why are you forcing well people to wear these? What about the damage, though, the damage of wearing these masks, say, on children and the elderly? On, just forget that, on everybody. So this, this is the real point of concern because we have evidence of very real harm that are associated with ongoing mask use. And it's the presence of these harms that make it simply not good enough to say, you know what, it's just a mask, it's not a big deal, just take one for the team and wear it. Or my personal favorite, the Premier of uh, Victoria, Daniel Andrews, saying, you know, you know what, masks are what allow us to keep open, uh, to keep essential businesses open during lockdown, and, and, or we should do everything that we can, wear it just in case, which is a thoroughly unscientific philosophy if there ever was one, but I digress. But given the evidence base for harms is very real and robust, we cannot be making these sorts of soft justifications. Now, I've just finished reading an exceptional paper, a peer-reviewed paper in a quality journal published in March of this year in the Journal of International Environmental Research and Public Health. Now, this study looked at 44 other peer-reviewed published studies, over a third of which were high-quality randomized control trials. And it found strong, damning evidence for for universal mask use. The harms associated with ongoing universal mask use can be divided into three broad categories. Physiological harm to the wearer, infective harm, and then psychological and social harm. There are others, but these are the three biggest ones that I want to touch on today. So with respect to physiological harm, 
what we're seeing are lowered levels of oxygen and increased levels of carbon dioxide associated with prolonged mask use. And the levels start to become perturbed very quickly in a matter of minutes. Now, if you're young, fit and healthy, and particularly if you don't have any symptoms, lower levels of O2 and higher levels of CO2 are going to make you feel a bit groggy, but you can tolerate them. You can be, you, you can be okay with that. When you have children, however, who are starting to report decreased attention, increased anxiety, more irritability, poor focus, which is getting in the way of their education, that's a concern. When you have elderly, infirm people with pre-existing lung conditions, any aberration to the oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in their blood can have very real phys physiological consequences for them. And it's ironic that we are pushing this mandate, which is actually causing harm in the most vulnerable segments of our society, whilst at the same time, we're claiming that it's protecting the very people that it's causing most of its harm to. With respect to infection risk, we've seen masks change people's behavior. We've seen people who are symptomatic or high risk donning a mask, gaining a false sense of security, and then going into densely populated areas and feeling that they're getting protected by this piece of cloth when in fact it's offering them no real world protection whatsoever. We're also seeing these items being put in people's pockets, being placed on desks, being placed repeatedly on unsanitary surfaces, unsanitary hands, and then being brought right up to the nasal and oral passages and being breathed through. And we're noticing a huge rise in bacterial pneumonias associated with these. In fact, we don't need to notice it, we've studied it and we've seen certain populations that have had mask mandates put in place in the past see up to a 14-fold increase, 14 times increase mm. in the risk of bacterial pneumonias associated with ongoing cloth mask use. Mm. And then last but by no means least, we're seeing very real psychological harm and social harm. We're seeing children reporting incredible levels of anxiety with respect to mask use when children should not be masked at all because their risk profile for COVID is incredibly low. And we've seen time and time again that they're not major transmitters of, of the virus. But really, masks have become symbols of division, fear, and tension in our community. We are seeing people berating and abusing one another for not wearing masks. We are seeing police officers engaging in unconscionable acts of brutality and intimidation for people who refuse to wear masks or for people who still have valid medical exemptions for not wearing masks. It's unconscionable and it is entirely unnecessary. Once upon a time, uh, we could trust the media, we can't now. Once upon a time, we could trust the medical profession and we can't now. Uh, Two questions, why aren't they speaking out? And secondly, how disturbing is that to yourself? This is, this is a big topic and obviously it's a very delicate topic. Um, there is a real divide in the medical community. We are seeing colleagues, friends, 
no longer associating with one another. We're seeing people uh, from previously very esteemed positions now being vilified and denigrated. Much of the divide in the medical community, I feel, is ideological. And that's because in the public health setting, doctors are implicitly expected to support the efforts of those, of those people who are in positions of authority, like health ministers. And you know, all doctors take that role very seriously. And many are exceptionally careful, I would say too careful, to not say or do anything that goes against the government tone. The position of many other doctors, though, is that the support that we are expected to lend politicians is not absolute. And nor should that support ever extend to policies and measures that, call, that cause a net harm to the public. So... Really, my view is that in this instance, the general public have actually become our collective patient cohort and our ultimate duty of care lies with their wellness, not with what suits politicians and their agenda. The other important point to note is that most doctors have worked incredibly hard to, to attain the positions that they're in and they don't want to be perceived as troublemakers. They don't want to be perceived as callous and they don't want to face the very real repercussions of cancel culture and of losing work, being overlooked for work and for referrals, which I can assure you has, has happened to me and has happened to my very close colleagues within the COVID medical network. Now, more importantly than all of this, though, is the fact that many doctors are actually still laboring under the false assertion that COVID is far more fatal than it actually is. And we will touch upon that a little later, but I want to make the point that many medical professionals are indeed speaking out. An unprecedented number, in fact. Many hundreds of thousands of doctors and scientists are speaking out. They're signing the Great Barrington Declaration. They are appearing on shows such as yours. They are banding together with the World Doctors Alliance. And disturbingly, they are being silenced, vilified, and attacked. So we've reached an incredibly dangerous point in our history where only state-sanctioned views are allowed and all the other forms of inquiry and intellectual debate are completely silenced. Mm. And to paraphrase Noam Chomsky, this is as old as time. Since power tends to prevail, intellectuals who serve their governments are, are the ones who are considered responsible. And the value-oriented intellectuals are dismissed and they're denigrated. Mm. And we've seen this since the very earliest of records. And to this, I would say... Truth welcomes debate. Truth never fears questions. It's only propaganda and fear-mongering that demands silence and obsequious compliance. There's other historical demands. I mean, and that word I used to use very um, sparingly, but I, truly I turn on the television as, as least as possible. But I always see Dan, um, I see Gladys, I see McGowan in Australia, I see Anastasia. <laughs> then overseas I see Fauci, I see uh, Biden, who doesn't know he's president yet. We see uh, in England, we see all the health officials there. So hysterical really has crept into my vocab uh, somewhat. And you can't blame me because you either cry or you just laugh yourself to death. But the constant testing of asymptomatic people. Uh, studies now show that asymptomatic aren't driving infections. In fact, Dr. Peter McCullough on a recent interview with us said that as of June 25, the World Health Organization 
recommends no more asymptomatic testing. What are your thoughts? <laughs> the entire notion of asymptomatic transmission really came to the forefront with COVID. It's, it's almost, not quite, but almost an invention of 2020. In fact, in March or April of last year, Dr. Anthony Fauci himself went on record on global television declaring emphatically that asymptomatic people are not the drivers of any respiratory pandemic, including this one. We have a whole host of seroprevalence studies that estimate that anywhere between 20 to 40% of all people who are infected with this virus never, ever develop any kind of symptoms. That is an enormous proportion. What we are hearing now about, what we are hearing now though, is about a thing called pre-symptomatic spread. The spread that occurs the day before someone actually develops symptoms. And we know from illnesses such as influenza that viral loads and viral shedding do occur before you actually become symptomatic. What's of real concern, though, is that, is that the computer models that predicted asymptomatic spread in, in SARS-CoV-2 actually predicted that the, the peak of transmission would occur 2.5 days before the onset of symptoms, which has no biological plausibility. If you ask any virologist, they'll just chuckle at that garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. So asymptomatic spread is not... A, a major consideration at all. Pre-symptomatic spread does occur to some extent. We don't know what, and we do know that the extent to which it contributes is definitely overplayed. And we know that the answers to these problems are not universal mask mandates because pre-symptomatic spread, when it does occur, occurs almost exclusively via the aerosol route. And we've shown that masks don't halt the transmission of aerosols. And the answer is also not wholesale lockdowns. And yet the, I, the specter of asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic spread has been used to justify precisely those things, universal mask mandates and universal lockdowns. It's atrocious. It's appalling. Mm. We know that lockdowns are not effective. Uh, government makes it look like they are with the testing and, and the inverted commas case counts. Uh, is there any benefit at all of, say, the five days or two weeks of lockdown? I mean, uh, Queensland had a couple of three-day ones. I mean, uh, do they toss a coin and say, oh, it says three. Oh, it says two weeks. Oh, it says three weeks. What are your thoughts? Mm. So the whole notion, the whole justification between the, for a snap lockdown is to allow contact tracers to have time to trace every single contact. Mm. That strategy only has any merit or any currency if you are achieving, if you are chasing the false idol of zero community transmission. And I don't know when the Australian people gave their consent to chase eradication at all costs. Lockdowns are a really contentious issue. In the data, Data for lockdowns is what, what we call a high degree of entropy, meaning there's a really high degree of variability associated with the findings. Some studies have come out in favor of lockdowns and others have been incredibly scathing. And there are a number of reasons for this. It has to do with the methodology of the paper, the, speci the specifics of the geography being studied and so on and so forth. But what we do know, 
what we have repeatedly seen and what you do not need to be medically trained to see is that whilst wholesale lockdowns do decrease the net number of infections, the degree of collateral damage far outstrips any purported benefit, especially in first world industrialized nations with robust healthcare systems and good general health in their broader populations. Lockdowns are a nuclear option. They cause inordinate levels of harm. They in fact cause death. And only the most unhinged and the most hysterical person would suggest that the most important metric of health in our society is getting the number of PCR tests down to zero. Mm. The WHO had a senior advisor who came out not so long ago and said, you need to stop locking down. Lockdowns are only so that you can get your PPE and your ICUs in order, and then you need to stop using them. The, the, the radical measures that are being employed, lockdowns being cheap amongst them, have incredibly adverse consequences. School closures interrupt learning. Uh, home confinement has strongly increased the rate of domestic violence. And it's also limited access of people to things, of, to, to other medical care, such as chemotherapy, heart disease tra mm. um, treatments. And also it's caused people in nursing homes to pass away from stress and isolation. Mm. I, I don't understand why they're not able to engage in a cogent, calm discussion between benefits and drawbacks. If they have the irrefutable evidence base that eradication is the best thing for all Australians, then why don't they discuss that with the broader medical community? So really, in many ways, lockdowns present the very worst of the current hysterical paradigm. They take, they take measures to a whole, level, whole new levels of recklessness and disproportionality. And the question that we really need to ask is how and why is this being allowed to continue? Mm. And it's really because the truth is not being allowed to be disseminated out into the broad public. There's a lot about SARS-CoV-2 that we know now that has come to light in the, in the last 18 months that does not fit the original picture that we were given out of China in March of last year. But the rhetoric and the measures being used have not evolved or changed to catch up with this reality. Now, I refer specifically to mortality, rates of hospitalization, and treatment. With respect to mortality, we were initially told that this virus has a three to four percent, two to three percent mortality, which is enormous. It's Spanish flu proportions. What we're seeing now, what seroprevalence studies are showing us, that the mortality is actually more like 0.1 to 0.5%. Compared with the Spanish flu, that had a mortality of 2 to 5%, depending on estimates. So we're looking at 20 to 100 times less deadly than the Spanish flu. We're also seeing that SARS-CoV-2 has a mortality profile that matches the, the profile of ordinary mortality which in plain English means the overwhelming majority of people who pass away from this virus are 82 years old or thereabouts, that's the median age, and they have at least two serious comorbidities. Now, 
normal mortality in developed countries occurs around about a median age of 82 years in people who have two or more serious comorbidities. Yet that fact is being suppressed. The other thing that we saw early in March is that something like 15% of people were going to require hospitalization. And yet what we saw that there was no such collapse of the healthcare system. We had two weeks to flatten the curve. Remember that? And then they changed. And when, when that really didn't pan out, they changed that to, oh, no, no, we've got to go for eradication. And the other point that I want to touch on is that they kept insisting that there are no viable treatments, no viable treatments. And what we're seeing is that the combination of ivermectin, vitamin D, zinc, along with a zinc ionophore such as quercetin or appropriate doses of hydroxychloroquine, when used in concert with one another early, can halt the progression of SARS-CoV-2 and can act actually diminish hospitalization by as much as 75%. Mm. That's an extraordinary figure. Mm. So we're seeing a virus that is nowhere near as fatal as they made it out to be. We're seeing rates of hospitalization that are nowhere near as severe or as diabolical as they made them out to be. We are seeing viable, promising treatments that when used early are stopping the vulnerable from getting very sick. Mm. And yet we are still seeing this hysterical, heavy-handed rhetoric from those in charge. We, we are seeing abandonment of the precautionary principle, or we're seeing the precautionary principle applied only with respect to COVID and with nothing else. We're seeing erosion of bodily autonomy and civil liberty. And most importantly, we're seeing the abandonment of that most hallowed tenet of medicine, and that is first, do no harm. And to all of this, we, the medical community, and we, the people, say enough. Mm. Enough is enough. Enough madness, hysteria, and lies. You're very passionate. Uh, appreciate your time. Um, we did have some hiccups there with our uh, internet, but you know, may, maybe, maybe the TGA is listening and they're, they're you know, <laughs> pulling out plugs at the moment. <laughs> Where's the doctor's one? Where's that one? But anyway, we got through it. Uh, brilliant conversation. And um, got to do more of this, I think. I think there's a, a lot we can discuss. Uh, Dr. Amin, thank you very much. Mike, thank you. And thank you so much for your incredible work. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.